Please stand and give your attention to the reading of God's word from the book of the prophet Malachi, chapter 3. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Chapter 4. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, and the hearts of children to their fathers lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. So it is my opinion that the central or chief temptation in celebrating Christmas each year is to capture so-called the spirit of the season and yet miss the entire point. If you grew up in a Christian home, or even not in a Christian home, if you grew up in, a, in an American home, you may have had a notion of Christmas as a child. And every year, you looked forward to a time where you would receive presents and you would sing special songs, and maybe you would even attend a special church service, perhaps a Christmas Eve service or a Christmas Day service. But as we grow old and become adults, it is undeniable that some of that magic starts to wear off, isn't it? Instead of just being whisked into the car to a special Christmas Eve service, now you are the one who has to stand in the cold and scrape off the windshield. Instead of giving presents, or getting presents rather, you now give presents. These presents, as we experience them, start to mean less. When we were a child, we couldn't buy anything at all. 
Well, I remember being a child about eight or nine years old. I'm not exactly sure which year. And I had this realization that when I was older, I could buy all the Legos. I didn't, I didn't have to wait for some Legos. The point is, when we receive these presents, we don't think they're important because we can buy anything we want. Now, some of us don't have a lot of money, but we can at least buy everything we need. Hark the herald angels sing, yeah, we know, we've heard it before. We'll hear it again. Go tell it on the mountain and tell it next year too. We start to become cynical. And the reason we become cynical is because we're missing the entire point. The point of the celebration of Christmas cannot be understood detached from the point of the season of Advent. The point of the season, or the reason for the season, as it's so often said, the reason for the season of Advent is to understand the reason for the season of Christmas. It's not enough that we proclaim a sort of naive evangelicalism that says, keep Christ in Christmas, when we don't even know what we mean by saying that. We're just really rooting for our team. Therefore, in this season of Advent, we remember the darkness of the sin of God's people, which he banished in Christ. That is the point of the season of Advent. And to that end, I want to look at six ideas from this passage, really four from this passage and two from the fulfillment in the New Testament. First, that God sent a warning to his people by the prophet Malachi. Next, that God is going to send his messenger, not a messenger with his own message, but his messenger. Third, that God himself will come as the refiner and the judge. He doesn't just say, I'm going to purify them. No, he says, I will sit as the refiner. Then finally, in this passage, a restoration of God's remnant, that there will be a group of people within Israel whom he will fulfill his promises to. Fifth, we're going to turn briefly to some places in the New Testament where John the Baptist is seen as that messenger. And finally, the fulfillment that comes in the day of Jesus Christ. Here is the theme of these texts and the theme of the purpose of this week, the second week of Advent. Because God's people have corrupted themselves with sin, only he can restore them by sending his messenger to prepare for his drawing near. The only remedy for the sin of Israel is that God would do something on their behalf. As we see over and over again in the prophets that by the breaking of the covenant, they destroyed the means by which they could call out to God. And the sacrifices which were to be a reminder of their sin to them were polluted, for they polluted them. And therefore, the only remedy is if God himself on his behalf for his glory, extends an olive branch, as it were, to his people. Through the prophets, all of the prophets, God warns Israel to turn from her sin, that he might heal her and live with her in peace. God speaks through the prophet Malachi, and in speaking through Malachi, God rebukes Israel for a number of things. And we're going to look just at a survey of Malachi's revelation God rebukes Israel first for despising his table. 
It's interesting to me that he uses the word table and not a different word that he could have used for the altar or for offerings alone. No, he points out that he himself loved to eat with his people. And in despising his table, they did this by bringing sacrifices. In Malachi 1 verse 8, God rebukes them saying that they're bringing lame and blind and sick animals and offering them up on his altar. If you remember, God had told Israel that when they would bring a guilt offering or a sin offering or a peace offering, all of them would be blameless, without spot, without blemish. These offerings were to be pure because they were symbolizing the deep need for a pure atonement. And yet, though God gave them a specific and clear rule, they despised his table. In fact, God says to Israel that they were serving him up things that they wouldn't even serve to a human ruler. Think about it this way. If President Trump arrived for dinner at your house, you wouldn't go get him McDonald's. Now, I like McDonald's on occasion, but the point is it's not fit for a king. It's not fit for even a president. The point is that they were giving up things that they wouldn't even like to eat themselves. They were despising God's table. And instead of treating God's table as purposeful and fruitful, they said in their hearts that it was a wearisome service, that serving the Lord was a wearisome thing. Israel went so far as to offer up animals which were stolen from others. If you know what the free will offering was, was supposed to be about, this is a foil of the free will. It's a perversion of worship. The free will offering was an offering that any Israelite could give if he just wished to be near God. And instead of offering it freely from his excess, he went and stole an offering and brought it and said, well, it's for the Lord. I'm doing a good thing here. And yet God calls this perversion God, in the second chapter of Malachi, warns through Malachi the priests that if they do not honor him, he will send a curse upon them. In Malachi 2, 5 through 8, we hear that though God is going to keep his covenant with Levi, God charged them to do one specific thing, to not only offer up sacrifices, but the, the societal task that they were given was to teach the people And yet God says that the priests are not teaching the people sound wisdom, but they are teaching them dark things, wicked things, false doctrines, which cause the people to stumble. The point is this, that God, who is their father, has been faithful to them, and yet they have been faithless, not only to him, but to each other. You see, true worship of God will always be filled in love and service to our neighbor love and service to our family. God rebukes the men of Israel, saying that he has covered, they have covered his altar with tears. The point is that God is making a lawsuit against Israel through Malachi. Though God put a portion of his spirit in the union between man and woman, seeking godly offspring, these men of Israel have been faithless towards their wives. They've either neglected them or they've gone after other women. And therefore, these women have come into God's temple and have weeped at his altar, a place which is supposed to be joyful and solemn 
not mournful and broken. This is what God is saying. He's saying to Israel through the prophet Malachi, you've ruined the covenant, you've broken it, and you will be judged. It is to this sort of people that the rebuke of God and the promises of God come. The message given through Malachi was not indiscriminately, was, was generally applied. It was not applied to a particular person here or there. No, all of Israel needed to know that they had broken the covenant and all of Israel needed to hear a rebuke and all of Israel needed to hear the promises of God that he would restore him. It is up to God, therefore, to apply his word to the individual's. God desires to dwell in the midst of his people, but as we've seen through Malachi in the first three chapters, God says, I cannot dwell with you because you have done these things. You bring me false offerings stolen from other people and offerings that are sick. You have not taught the people, priests. You have instead taught your own wisdom, and you have not been faithful to your wives, men. You have instead caused them to stream tears such that they could be called a flood. This is what God is taking exception with with his people and he wants therefore to dwell with them but only in dwelling with them can they be restored but before he can dwell with them he must send a messenger to prepare the way. And so Malachi 3.1 reads, behold I will send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. One of the beautiful things about this verse is it's, it's what we call a chiasm. There's a central idea in the middle and it's sandwiched. You can think of it like a burger with two buns and, and meat in the middle. There's something in the heart of what this messenger is supposed to do. I'm going to send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight is coming. But right in the middle, the Lord will suddenly come to his temple. Verse 5, behold... I will send you, in in Malachi 4, behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. The question that we have to ask ourselves is this, why does God send his messenger before he comes? Why doesn't he just come directly? If you remember, throughout the history of Israel, it has been the presence of God which has caused them to prosper. So if they are in such a dire straight, uh, state, why does God not just come in their midst immediately? And we find the answer throughout the entire scriptures. Throughout history, before God would come to visit his people, he sent a man as a mediator or a forerunner to represent him before the people and to represent the people to him. Think about back to the Exodus when God sent Moses to deliver Israel out of Egypt. He didn't just snatch Israel out of Egypt. He could have, but he was doing something there. He was teaching the people about their need for a mediator. They cannot dwell with God directly. We see this at Sinai after the people of Israel leave Egypt and are in the wilderness. On Sinai, God tells Moses as he comes up to the mountain to warn the people not to even touch the mountain, nor to even look too closely. As it says in Exodus 19, 21, lest the Lord break out against them. 
The point is this, that God cannot abide sin. And so in his mercy, God sends a messenger before himself to go and prepare the people that they would be in a right understanding to experience his presence. This is the heart of what God wishes to do for his people. God desires his people. He loves them. He doesn't just want their obedience to the law. He doesn't just want their faithfulness to the covenant. He wants his people. They are his special treasure. They are his heritage, it says. Imagine that, the infinite, uncreated God who has all power, who has all delight and joy in himself, calls his people an inheritance, something he's looking forward to, something he doesn't want to lose or dwindle. And so because of God's great love for the people, he comes to purify those who are his and judge all those who are not. The picture of Israel at this time is a group of people, some whom have gone away, most have gone away, and have, as we saw last week, prostituted themselves to the other gods. They've sold their soul to demons at these physical idols. And yet God says to his people, for those of you who do fear me, I'm going to come and I'm going to be precious and sweet to you. But before hearing the promise, hear the warning. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purify of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring in offerings. They will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. If you remember last week, we heard that through Jeremiah that God would fulfill his promise both to David, the covenant with David, and the covenant with Levi, that David would never lack a man to sit on the throne, and that the Levites would be able to offer offerings in his presence because there would be a man in his presence. Just as when God came to Sinai, when the mountain quaked and smoked, so also he's going to come in the midst of his people. He's going to come into their midst, and he's going to be seated in judgment. As he judges, God is going to remove from Levi all that does not remain, all that cannot remain, so that Levi would be pure. In Isaiah 58, we hear this very similar language that Isaiah says that God has tried his people or purified his people through the furnace of affliction. And we had saw that as God brings his people into exile, he's doing something to their hearts. He's he's allowing them to recognize the fruit of their former sins. Their sins which had been detached from an immediate judgment Now, the fruit of those sins is plainly visible before their eyes. It is very interesting that God uses the imagery of fire to describe what he will do to his people. And in fact, this idea that God will bring a fire upon Levi and a fire upon his people, scripturally speaking, means only a few things. The only things that are burnt with fire in the scriptures are either sacrifices or, in one case, the daughter of a priest who plays the harlot. Now, this is a terrifying image, but the point of that law was that God was trying to say to Israel, do not go serve other gods. Stay true to me. 
Do not be like a wife who forsakes her husband. Stay close to me. Because God has called her idolatry, adultery, Israel's idolatry, adultery, this image is extremely helpful because it tells us who God's people were supposed to be. They were supposed to be priests. They were supposed to worship him in love and in truth. And yet they went off to gods who didn't have any power, gods which were not even gods at all. God is going to therefore purify Israel, not by destroying her, but by destroying her idols. And lest she hold on to them too closely, she must cast them away so that she would not be burnt herself. In Malachi 4.1, we hear, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave, look, listen closely, it will leave them neither root nor branch. Now, remembering our sermon last week, remembering hearing from Jeremiah that God is going to raise up a righteous branch for the root of Jesse out of Israel, we have to ask ourselves a question. How can God raise up a righteous branch if he burns Israel so that it will leave them neither root nor branch? The question is, how can God bring judgment if he says that judgment will be complete And yet, on the other hand, he has said, I'm going to raise up a righteous branch from this dead stump of the kings of Judah. The paradox is settled in this as Romans 9, 6. I thought it was serendipitous or maybe providential that Andy this morning quoted Romans 9, 6. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. This is why it's so difficult for us to understand the the question of apostasy in the gospel because we presume that all of our fellow church members are all part of the church. It's the same as it was in the day of Israel. All those who were in the nation of Israel were not of Israel. There were some who were not Israelites in heart. Paul goes on at another place to say the one who is a Jew is the Jew inwardly. It doesn't matter if circumcision takes place externally if circumcision hasn't taken place internally. And so the dilemma or the paradox is settled thusly. God will indeed raise up a righteous branch. He will indeed fulfill his promise to David. He will cause Levi to still be able to offer up pure sacrifices. Yet, he will completely cut off those who refuse to acknowledge that righteous branch, to be found in that righteous branch. Malachi therefore warns that those who persist in their evil will be consumed in judgment by fire coming on a day of the Lord. The reason I say a day of the Lord is it's very clear in the way that the prophets write, there are many days of the Lord and there have been days of the Lord and there are still to come days of the Lord. Even though all who are evil will be cut off, those who fear the Lord will be restored as his faithful people. Whenever we see Israel in deep trouble, we see God judge those who will refuse to follow in his ways, but he spares a righteous remnant, a small subset of the larger group of the people of Israel those who are nationally Israelites versus those who are his people. 
In Malachi 3.3, we hear, he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And here's the promise fulfilled, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Hearing that in the context of Malachi, the first aim of God against his people is that the priests have polluted the sacrifices. The people have brought the wrong sacrifices and the priests have not refused them at the door. Likewise, the priests themselves have not offered up pure offerings and taught the people. They have simply offered up evil sacrifices and taught what is false. And here God says, even though you know your sin, you will offer an offering that is righteous and is pure and is pleasing and is acceptable to him. Verse four, then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in the former years. This beautiful picture is that not only God is not only will God restore worship in Israel, but Jerusalem and Judah will offer an offering, a singular offering that is unified once again. That God will take this broken nation that was split in two and unify them so that they offer up one offering. Though Israel had offered up false worship after the coming of the Lord, he will again be pleased with their offerings. Earlier in Malachi 1.10, we hear that God wished that someone would simply close the doors to the temple. Do you hear how stark and offensive their worship must have been to God? He says, I wish that you would just stop. Even though he commanded that the fire on the altar never go out, he says at this point, the offerings have become so perverse, so perverted, so backward that he wished they would not do it anymore. But here he promises amazingly, graciously, without any repentance on the part of Israel having taken place first, He says to them, you will indeed bring righteous offerings. But not only will they be able to make offerings, they'll be worthy offerings. They'll be offerings that he's delighted by. And they'll be offerings that it is right for them to give. The point is this, that when God comes and refines Levi and is like a fuller's soap, that that action will cause the people to change. They will not repair themselves in order to offer up good offerings, but no, when he is present, he will purify them and they will offer up right offerings. What are we therefore to do in the light of the knowledge of his coming judgment? You see, Malachi is not just offering up a notice of judgment. No, he's calling God's people to remember the covenant and to return to God And therefore, he's calling the people to fear the Lord. He is not like Jonah who went to Nineveh and announced, uh, what number of days? 40 days? And the city is ended. That God's judgment will come and there's no relenting. There's, There's no chance for repentance. No, Malachi comes and he says, God will indeed come, but you who fear the Lord, you will be spared. Verse two of Malachi four, but for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. I want you to imagine the sun coming up. Are there any wings to the sun? Not in the way that we think, 
The point is this, that Malachi is intending to help his people think, well, what does that mean? What does it mean that the sun will rise and he'll bring healings? Or he'll bring healing? And what does it mean for him to have wings? There are a number of different interpretations. In fact, this is one of those places where commentators just come up with a large number of ideas. Some people connect them to the tassels that the priest and the, and the um, prophets would wear. Some connect them to the fringes of the clouds as the clouds surround the sun and it's supposed to be an image. The point is this, he wants you to think about it. He wants you to meditate. How will the sun bring healing? And what does it say that the sun's going to rise? It says that the people are in a dark land. Verse three, the promise goes on to say, you shall tread down the wicked for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. How are ashes made? They're made after something burns. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. This knowledge of his coming judgment should drive us to repentance for he will not sweep away the righteous with the wicked. If you remember Abraham as he was encountering the guests on their way to Sodom and Gomorrah, he pleaded with the Lord saying, you will surely not judge the righteous with the wicked. Yes and amen. And this is why it's so helpful to understand God is going to preserve a remnant and those who are not of his people, those who will not fear his name, those who will not forsake their idols, he will burn them utterly. But the, the deliverance that God brings to his remnant is going to be an amazing thing. They're going to leap for joy. He says they're going to go out like calves that are newborn. If you've ever witnessed a birth, it is an amazing thing. If you've ever witnessed the birth, perhaps maybe on YouTube or, or even in person, of a calf that is being born, it's an amazing thing. It is brought forth through struggle. It is brought forth in a little bit of danger. But after the birth, there is joy. There's joy to the parents. There's joy, in this case, to the owner. There's joy to the calf as it starts to spring away. It's, it's amazing how God has made certain animals to be able to walk around immediately and others, like humans, we, we can't move at all. And God here says, there's going to be a new birth for you as a people. You will leap in joy. The reason this is such great news is because the scriptures over and over again present the suffering of the remnant in the midst of their day, their evil day, as something that is torturous to their soul. In 1 Peter, we hear about Lot, how Lot was being tortured by the citizens of his city, that he, although he was righteous, those around him were pestering him with their wickedness. Doesn't this feel like our day? When those who love the Lord Jesus Christ are persevering, in the midst of a wicked and perverse culture that constantly is warring against their souls. Brothers and sisters, this knowledge that God will utterly destroy the wicked is great news because it means that all those sources of temptation, all those sources of drawing away our souls to perversion will eventually be ended by the Lord. At the coming of John the Baptist, 
before the birth of Jesus Christ, God did indeed fulfill this prophecy to Malachi, through Malachi. He said that he would send Elijah to turn the hearts of Israel back to their God. Now, indeed, he did say, I will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. But if you remember the context of Malachi, God in Malachi says, am I not their father? Are they not my children? The point is that God is sending Elijah, the spirit of Elijah, or someone who looks like Elijah, to come and to minister to his people so that they would be drawn to him. We hear through the mouth of Zechariah, the father of John, in his prophecy that he made at John's birth, he says, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. Look at what he says, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. Do you remember what God said concerning the people that the sun of righteousness will rise with healing on its wings? Not only does Zechariah call John his son the forerunner, the one who goes before the Lord, but he also identifies Christ as the son of righteousness. Jesus, as, as the gospel of John says, is the light of the world which was coming into the world or into the land. And in coming, it enlightens every man. Jesus, therefore, will not just be a light, but he is supposed to, note carefully, guide Israel in the way of peace. Just as in Malachi's prophecy, John rebuked the Pharisees, the the priests, for abusing God's people. If you remember Malachi, the beginning is God taking exception with the priests of Israel for abusing the people. And when we meet John, he calls all the nation to repentance, but he specifically warns the Pharisees that there is a axe that is coming and it is laid to the root What did God say through Malachi? I will leave them neither root nor branch. There is an axe laid to the root. And therefore, John is preparing the people of Israel as a whole for the arrival of the Lord. Likewise, in his ministry, Jesus even calls John Elijah. In Matthew 17, 12, and 13, we read, But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, But they did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. And then here Matthew explains what Jesus wrote. By the Spirit of God, Matthew, the gospel writer, is able to see and remember what took place among he and the other apostles. And he said this, Then the disciples understood that he was speaking of John the Baptist. You see, Jesus calls John Elijah, and here, it, if, you, if you can imagine just air quotes, it's a sign. It's a name. Uh, we, we often use the word metonym to describe this technique. John is Elijah. John is not Elijah reincarnated, as some mistakenly thought. 
but rather John came and he did what Elijah did. He called the people of Israel back to faithfulness in the covenant to forsake their sins and to prepare themselves for God's arrival. John called the people to repent and for a while some listened, but Herod slew him. We see this picture at the beginning of the scriptures in the New Testament where Herod slays the children born near where Jesus was supposed to be found and he's wanting to cut off the head of the real branch being a remnant of that false branch. Later on, a different Herod kills John. He cuts off his head. And the reason that Jesus says he is going to be given over and he's going to suffer is because of the purpose of God. God knows why he needs to send his son. This is exactly indeed why he had to send his son. It's because God, even though he had given a warning of judgment and had said, I will come, before, I will come to you, but before I do, I'm going to send my messenger to prepare my way. Look at what they did to the messenger who came before him. This is why Jesus Christ had to come. God did not send Jesus Christ into the world to bring some vague notion of peace. In fact, I think we often get some of the Christmas story wrong in this way. We sing songs like Joy to the World. Now, I love Joy to the World. But the point of Christmas, as the world celebrates Christmas is not just a vague notion of peace, that Jesus' birth will magically settle the waywardness of his people and the idolatries of the Gentiles. No, the sending of Jesus Christ is to accomplish something. It is to cleanse his people from the things which make for war. Do you remember what Zechariah said? The son of righteousness or the sunrise will come and he will teach us the ways of peace, those things which are needed from for peace. As Isaiah said at the time in Isaiah 59:2, he said to Israel, "Your iniquities have made a separation between you and God." And the resolution to that separation is that the son of God came to bridge that gap. Israel had sinned so grievously that God said, "I will refuse to hear your offerings. I will refuse to hear your prayers. You cannot repent." And therefore, he sent his son to remedy the situation. In the fullness of time, after his birth, the Lord Jesus did suddenly come into the temple. Those who were delighting in the covenant, people like Simeon and Anna, who represented the righteous remnant, saw the Lord Jesus Christ and celebrated his birth. If you remember the story of Simeon, he is the one who who uttered the prophecy or song which we call the Nunc Dimittis, now I can depart for my eyes have seen the salvation of the Lord, a salvation which he has prepared in the presence of all peoples or for all peoples. The point is that Simeon and Anna see the Lord come unexpectedly into the temple. And it's so beautiful the way that God does this through the Christmas accounts that Jesus, after the days of the purification were over, came into the temple by his parents. There wasn't an announcement beforehand, oh, this is the day when Jesus is coming. No, they came suddenly, without warning, with any, without any announcement beforehand. The Lord Jesus came into the temple and he was in the presence of his people. 
That was not the only time he came into the temple. At the very start of his ministry, Jesus came into the temple, this time to purify it from the evil practices of usury. I always flub that word. We have a difficulty, we who read too much, we don't learn how to pronounce things. Usury, excuse me. The point of what was going on was this. Imagine the temple complex, and there is a place that the Jews had set aside for the Gentiles to be. In fact, it wasn't even originally part of the temple complex. Nevertheless, they set up tables at which they would keep jars and bins of money. And Gentile Jews, Hellenistic Jews, Jews who had converted but were not ethnically Israelites, would come to Jerusalem to keep the feasts, to offer up offerings. If they were in in Jerusalem for business or traveling through that region, they would come before God and they would wish to be in God's presence for they loved him. And yet Israel had despised God's presence and they had therefore set up things in the temple complex, on the temple grounds, by which they profited from God's worship. This is very different from people taking salaries to work in the church. This is, every time you bring an offering, I'm going to take a tenth of it. I'm going to take 15%, maybe 20% if you came from afar. If you had an especially rare currency and came, maybe I'm going to charge you 25%. One of every four coins, it's not that much. This is what Israel had done, and they had put it in the midst of the temple. This is exactly like the people in Jeremiah's day, where they had put the idols in the temple. Instead of the idols of gold being overlaid on top of wood, these idols were just gold sitting in the form of coins. Mammon was their God, and they were worshiping him in Christ's temple. The point is this, knowing that Jesus would go to the cross after his ministry was almost over, Jesus pronounced woes against Jerusalem. In Luke 19, 42, Jesus wept over Jerusalem and said, would that you, even you, had known on this day, note carefully, the things that make for peace. What was Jesus going to do in his preparation according to Zechariah? He's going to be a light on the people and he will teach them the things which are needed for peace. Jesus said, Woe to you, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. He then prophesied after saying, These things that make for peace are hidden from them, that God will come, that there will be a time in which the armies surround you and siege you and overtake you and tear you down. After this moment, it is interesting, after pronouncing woes, Luke records that Jesus then went again into the temple and he found it exactly as he did at the start of his ministry. Jesus did not go to the temple just once. He went first at the beginning of his ministry in John 2. He went again in Luke 19. And in both times, he found the house full of mold. That's what the Israelites were saying In their experience, the priest would come and look, and if there were mold in the wall, they would scrape it out and tear it away and plaster it back up, and he was to shut up the house for seven days, and if he came back and found mold again, then it must be torn down. This is the beauty of the scriptures, brothers and sisters. Jesus wanted his people to be pure, and they refused to be pure. 
Therefore, this is the point of the season of Advent. Advent reminds us of the darkness and the blinding nature of sin. Though God was in the flesh before our eyes, his people killed him. When we ask the question, who killed Jesus Christ? It's right to say the Romans killed Christ. It's also right to say the Jews killed Christ. But in a more right way, in a more true way, it was the sin of God's people which killed Christ. After his resurrection, ascension, and the slaughter of the martyrs, Jesus did eventually come in judgment as, Mo- as Malachi prophesied, burning both the city and the temple at the hand of the Romans, and none of God's people were harmed. In the process of bringing a warning against Israel, which Malachi said, and Jesus and John the Baptist and the other apostles also reiterated, God gave a warning to his people They refused that warning, most of them, and yet we know from the book of Acts, a great number of the priests even believed. Even some of the Pharisees joined the church, and God did a great work among the Jews and the Gentiles, both in the day of Pentecost and the subsequent decades. In the judgment of Jerusalem, none of God's people were harmed. Though the false temple had been destroyed, Jesus had already raised up a new temple, the church in which his people truly worship. In his ministry, when Jesus was speaking with the Samaritan woman, he said that an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. In essence, if you wanted to paraphrase, Jesus is saying what Malachi prophesied will come to pass. Levi will offer up good offerings and true sacrifices, but it won't be ethnic Levi. It'll be the true Levi. Now by the Holy Spirit, Christ is still building up that temple of which you and I are called by Peter, living stones, to be built up into a spiritual house in which we would offer up pure offerings in which the Spirit would dwell. Therefore, in the church, the new creation of Christ, the offering of God's people is truly pleasing to the Lord. This is the point of passages like this. Unless Christ appears, we will have only darkness. Not just outside there in society, but also inside here. In the lighting of the Advent candles, which we'll do in a minute, we symbolize the reality of God's people before his coming. They were all in darkness. They were all in need for repair. They all needed healing. This is the central need that Malachi speaks to. This is the central human dilemma is this, that in the blindness of our sin, we trivialize the coming of Christ. What I said at the beginning, it's so easy to lose the essence of what Christmas is all about because we mistake it for its trappings. We should celebrate joyfully. We should use wonderful Christmas songs and Christmas presents and Christmas trees. All of those are great if we retain the understanding of why it's so important. Unlike the gifts that we get at Christmas, the gift of Jesus Christ is the only gift we actually need. It's the only thing that we can't go to the store and buy. That is the point of the season of Advent and Christmas, is before the coming of Christ, before the working of the Spirit in our lives, we love our sin, we don't fear the Lord, and therefore we don't see the point of Christ's coming, let alone his death and resurrection. 
Just as the lighting of the candles reminds us of our darkness before Christ, so also with the giving of presents, giving of Christmas presents. We exchange those things which we can give to one another, but we can never give anything to God that is worth giving. And we desperately need him to give us the gift of Christ. Therefore, this is the call of Malachi. Let us look to Christ, the perfect gift of God to his people, who removes their sin and blindness and makes them into his holy people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for the writings of the prophets which saw the day of Christ, although vaguely, although just in seed form. What they they looked forward to what they anticipated, we now look back to and we celebrate. We pray, Lord, that you would cause us to remember the joy that your son brought and that we would see it as our only solution, our only, our only need. That we would understand the salvation which Christ brings through his gospel and that the Holy Spirit is able to purify his people. Lord, we recognize that of what Malachi said about Israel, it is true of us. And therefore, we ask you that you would send your spirit, that he would purify all that which cannot remain, that we would worship the Lord Jesus in truth and in spirit. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.